This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Matteo Ascarapur, author of Black Buck. I'm trying to sell you on my perspective, right? I'm trying to, through my tone, sell you on my competency, not only as an author, but someone who can speak with belief and with competency about my own book. We'll be back with Matteo Ascarapur in just a bit. Hi, listeners. It's me, Mitzi, your host and producer. Do you know, over the last seven plus years, I've produced more than 320 interviews? That means if you start listening to one a day right now, I can catch up. And by the end of the year, you will have listened to one a day. Because I'm committed to 40 interviews a year. But this year, I produced 51. And guess what? It's a colossal effort. I mean, gargantuan. I read a book a week, research the author, set up the interview, conduct the interview, and edit the show every single week with a staff consisting of me. And please know, it is indeed a labor of love, but it is also a labor. I emphatically believe that what I do, that what we create, the writers and I and you, the listener, matters. There's an alchemy that happens with every single interview. Please consider becoming a contributing member by donating at patreon.com slash First Draft Writers. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash First Draft Writers. You can give any amount, but starting with $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes, cuts that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps this show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's such an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear. I believe that conversations about art and craft make life better, especially now when we are missing so much human connection. So whether this is your first listening experience or you have caught the more than 320 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation and a lot of vulnerability if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. It's important to me to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics, which dependably add up to conversations which focus on what it means to be alive today. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every question I ask. And it takes money and time and equipment and organization and more late nights than you can imagine and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you're about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash first draft writers. 
Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. In fact, tell everyone you know to subscribe, even your frenemies. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is Matteo Ascaripur, author of the novel Black Buck. His writing has appeared in Entrepreneur, Lit Hub, Catapult, The Rumpus, and Medium, among others. He lives in Brooklyn and aims to empower people of color to seize opportunities for advancement. This aim is reflected in his debut novel, Black Buck, which tells the story of an unambitious 22-year-old named Darren who lives in a bedsty brownstone with his mother, who wants to see him reach his potential. After graduating valedictorian of his high school class, Darren started working at a Starbucks where he is a manager who his employees look up to. After a chance encounter at Starbucks with the CEO of an up-and-coming startup, Darren is transformed into Buck as he excels at sales at his new job. He endures a hell week of hazing and direct and indirect racism daily at his new company, but he is determined to succeed. However, he must pay the price of success as those he loves at home get left behind, and after rising so high, he turns his aims closer to home and starts an underground organization to train and lift up people of color in the world of sales. We began with Matteo Ascaripur sharing his own experience in sales. I worked at a tech company for around four years, and I I got in when I was uh, about 21. This was October 2012, and it was a whirlwind. I was looking for jobs after going through some like strange government program <laughs> where they, they flew me to Central Asia uh, for two months. Uh, and then I came back and I was looking for jobs and I was living at my parents' house in Long Island. And, you know, I, I, I'm not going to say I was looking for any type of job. I wasn't just going to do anything, but um, I was looking at a variety of different things, you know, completely different from what I studied in college. And there's this one company that was going to teach people how to use the internet. And I felt, you know, very, very egalitarian. I said, this is great. Power to the people. And when I went in there, the first interview went well. Then I came in for the second. And they said, hey, you know, we just hired two guys um, to write this video content. And funnily enough, it was about writing. And back then, I I couldn't even have pictured myself as a writer. But I was going to write this video content for them. So they, they hired these two guys, but they said they wanted me to intern there. And everything happened so quickly in that meeting. And I said, yes. And I began interning there. I was waking up at like 4 a.m. My mom, you know, she's a nurse. She works in the city. She'd drive me in. I'd stay with a friend for a couple hours, and I'd go into this company. And that was my first foray into the world of tech. And it was at that company where months later I became community manager in social media. And then, let's say, eight months after that, the CEO asked me to start the sales team with him um, because an investor who I'd spoken with at like a happy hour thought that I had what it took. And the CEO um, gave me this crash course in sales. I had no idea what I was doing. I had marbles in my mouth. I I definitely was close to getting fired a handful of times, but it worked out. Um, I remember the day I closed my first deal. I remember who it was with. I remember for how much it was for. And then um, the team grew from just me, you know, in sales to around 90 people in like two, two and a half years. And um, at that point, 
the, the, the company was growing, everything was taking off. And come 2016, I am 24, managing 30 people. Most of them are either cold callers or people taking inbound interest from potential clients. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm making six figures, but I just became disillusioned. I became disillusioned with the world of tech, with the way that I was living. Um, I felt like I wasn't healthy mentally, physically, or emotionally. And, uh, I ended up turning to writing and I left the company in 2016. So that's just like a general <laughs> overview, uh, including some of my sales history. I can see then from your own history where Black Buck came from. But before we get to that, I can't let go the fact that you said you were doing some strange government job overseas. Uh, were you a spy? No. And it was uh, when I say a strange government program, I know it, it comes off that way. So it's basically this thing called the critical language uh, scholarship. And it's from the State Department. And what they do is, you know, you have people um, you know, in college or in a master's program, or even people, you know, pursuing their PhDs apply and it's super competitive. And what you're applying for is to study a language that Americans typically don't learn. So not your French, Spanish, or Italian, but more so your Azerbaijani, your Russian, your Mandarin, um, your, your Persian. And the, the government, you know, wants to teach Americans these languages to further American interests. So me, you know, I said, you know, my mom, she's from Jamaica. My dad's from Iran. My dad never really taught us anything about his, his culture, his language or anything like that. You know, I have four brothers. We all were just raised as, as black men um, in America with Caribbean heritage. Um, so when I, when I saw the opportunity to study my father's language, Persian, um, in Tajikistan, which is in Central Asia, it's actually one of the poorest, it's the poorest former Soviet Union uh, country in Central Asia, I jumped at the chance. I had to go through some hoops and it was an incredible program. You know, the Tajik people were, were wonderful, kind people. The country itself was honestly one of the most uh, beautiful places, at least in terms of, of nature that I've been to. And the program worked. I came back and I'm not going to say I was um, just fluent, you know, in two months, but it was I was extremely proficient, you know, so it worked. Even though you weren't a writer then, did studying another language that's so different change how you looked at our language? Maybe in subconscious, you know, in my subconscious. Um, the thing is, is right, for me, writing has always been important. When I was a kid, I'd, I'd write stories. When I was even working at that company, I made, <laughs> made my weekly email updates, follow a narrative to, to engage everyone that I was uh, managing and, and the rest of the people in the company that were reading these updates so that it wasn't like we increased numbers by this much this week. We decreased numbers by this much this week, you know? Um, and when I was actually in Tajikistan, I wrote a short story in Persian. Um, so, so I guess that's a testament to the fact that storytelling has always been important for me. And it's been something embedded in my DNA, especially from, um, you know, going to Jamaica when I was younger uh, my, my family is from a rural part of Jamaica, a place called K Valley, and we would just sit outside um, almost in the dark on top of a big hill where my grandfather's house was, and my family would just go around talking, you know, telling stories about how it was for them back in the day. Uh, duppy stories. Duppies are basically like these uh, mischievous, uh, I guess sometimes malicious spirits. So I grew up hearing a lot of these stories. Um but like I said earlier, 
I never really thought that I was going to be a novelist. I mean, I've always enjoyed fiction, um, but I, I, I never, you know, knew that I'd be writing these books. I thought that what was going to happen is that I was going to be a CEO. I was going to build a company. And then when I was like 50 or 60, after it was super successful, I was going to write a book about how I did it. Right. And we, we know how those books go. Um, they're, they're super part and parcel. Um, so, so yeah, you know, studying Persian, it probably did have an impact on the way that I, I view language. Um, but none that I can speak of right now, I think more so it had an impact on my mind, right. While I was learning that language and while I'm speaking it in that language, you put the verb at the end, which is, which is very different than English. So let's talk about Black Buck. I can I can tell that from your experience in sales that 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 influenced the plot and the character of the novel. So Black Buck tells the story of a 22-year-old named Darren and his name is Darren Vender. He lives in Bed-Stuy in New York with his mother and a lodger. His um, mother happens to own the building, which is really amazing as it gentrification is happening all around him. She works in a Clorox factory and you get the intimations in the very beginning that she's kind of sick. She go- misses work sometimes. She's coughing. And he um, graduated valedictorian. He has a girlfriend, Soraya, who... Um, he has been with for a long time. He's known her since childhood. And although he's very intelligent, he just doesn't know what to do with all his talent. So he works in a Starbucks and he's like the boss of everyone in the Starbucks and he's really good and he's really personable and he's a very good leader. He hasn't gone to college and, and there's a lot of talent just going untapped. And a customer comes in one day and he kind of goes out of his comfort zone and and suggests a drink to this customer who always gets the same thing. And the customer happens to be the CEO of this tech company who is impressed by Darren. He, he gets pulled in to the company and becomes a salesman and goes through kind of like a hazing like you would do in a, in a fraternity with this guy named Clyde and a few other people. And he gets this nickname Buck and he rises. He he proves his mettle. He becomes a really good salesman. He has influence over over other people in the company and then things sort of go awry with the company and his own ambitions to make sure that he is bringing other black folks along because he's the only black individual in the company. And there's a lot of maybe sideways, maybe direct racism towards him. And so he wants to lift up other blacks and teach them how to be sales people. And the the premise of the book in a way is kind of a manifesto of of how to be a good salesman. It has salesman tips and it's told in first person in in a in a very funny self-reflective way of all the things that happened to him. So tell me about how the voice of of Buck came to you and how you started this. And once you started it, did you have a vision or were you kind of wildly writing and seeing where the story went? Yeah, so Buck's voice was very natural. I'm not going to say it's my voice one-to-one. We definitely have some similarities, um, but, you know, Buck, Buck speaks how Buck speaks. But I, I knew his voice from the first page, right? And, and in that author's note, which is, you know, written by Buck, 
Uh, at least he, he signs the author's note at the bottom because, as you know, you said the manifesto. You know, the way that I discuss it is, is it's like a memoir or, or sales manual that this character uh, Buck is writing. You know, you see his voice from the first page. You 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 understand um, maybe not fully where it's going to go, but you get a gist. You get a gist for who this man is and the journey that he's about to take you on and fortunately you know his voice was clear to me from that first page in terms of how I began you know I knew that I wanted to begin writing this book in January of 2018 Um, I had written two two novels that didn't go anywhere I didn't you know get an agent from them I didn't uh, get a get a book deal from them Um, but I'm so happy that I wrote them because I, I learned so much about writing and what it means to be a writer in the process. And those are two things that I'm still learning. And I hope that I'm forever learning, right? What it, what it means to write and what it means to be a writer and a good literary citizen. Um, so after I had written those books and I, I hit, you know, what I typically describe as a creative rock bottom, I was, I was looking for, I was looking for ways to get out of, get out of a rut. And um, fortunately, you know, I read Stephen King's On Writing, which is uh, a common source of inspiration for so many would-be writers and already established authors. And there were a couple pieces of advice in that book that just really rang true to me and, and woke me up out of my funk. And one was that the way that he writes all of his books is he just gets his characters into scenarios and then figures out how to get them out of it or not get them out of them over the course of hundreds of pages. And I was like, wow, okay, that's none of this esoteric, you know, you have to do this, you have to do that to be a writer, you know, to to forge something true. It just felt very direct in a manner that resonated with me. The second thing he said is that to become a better writer, you simply need to write more and read more. And again, this, this, these simple, um, these simple pieces of advice just really struck a chord with me. And I said, okay, I'm going to write more. I'm not going to hesitate about it. I'm not going to judge myself in the process. I'm not going to come to the page lightly, as he says in the, in, in the book. And um, I'm also going to consume as much art as possible. So that was around November 2018 when I read the book. I had an idea for uh, a novel I wanted to write in 2018. And it, it was going to be a book about an elite group of black salespeople who end up becoming like domestic terrorists (laughs) and just blowing up a bunch of buildings. And then by the time I actually sat down to write the book in January, the idea was completely, it it was more refined, even though I didn't know exactly how it was going to play out. So January 8th, I remember, I remember the night I didn't plan on writing the book then, but something just took hold of me. And I know it sounds like, woo woo and really crazy, but yeah, something took hold of me. And I just, I wrote that author's note and uh, I sat back and I looked at it. I had a friend with me and I, and I read it to her and I remember her saying, did you just write that right now? I said, yeah. And that author's note is largely unchanged from when I first wrote it to today. Um, but in, in terms of, did I know how the book was going to play out? No, I didn't. Um, I didn't outline this book. I knew the big twist from the first page. I knew the big twist that was going to happen, but I had no idea how I was going to get the reader there. I didn't know what would transpire uh, between the beginning and the end. I didn't know the characters 
that, you know, were going to introduce themselves to me and then help me create them on the page. Um, so it was such a fun process. And you, you use the word wild. Um, it felt wild at times while I was writing it. And a lot of readers, the reviews that, I, that I've read, you know, describe this book as a roller coaster. And it was it was full of ups and downs for me while I was writing as well, but I had a lot of fun overall. And, you know, hopefully the reader can, uh, the reader can pick that up when they read it. I mean, one of the things that really stands out is, is Buck's uniqueness in this situation. He he's pulled in by the CEO who sees something in him, kind of like what happened to you. Someone saw something in you and to have someone believe in you is so powerful, especially because in his case, it was someone at the very top. But he's working under this director of sales named Clyde, who crosses the line every day in terms of of his his language, his behavior. I think like in the hazing on day one or week one, he Buck went to his desk and they dropped white paint all over his body. Like it's, it's so clearly racist, but how he deals with it is like, he's like, there's a bigger picture here. It's an important thing to discuss, right? Because for many people who read the book, this is, you know, Buck beginning in some ways to lose himself by not standing up to Clyde's, overt racism by not speaking up regarding the microaggressions, you know, which some of them start out as funny, right? Hey, has anyone ever told you you look like MLK? Man, has anyone ever told you you look like Malcolm X? Has anyone ever told you you look like Sidney Poitier? Right. That's, that's funny in so many ways. By the end of the book, you're like, wow, like, does this actually happen to black people? Cause if so, this would be wild, you know, and it does happen. It's happened to me. Um, so it calls into question, right? Buck's character and and what he stands up for because he definitely doesn't stand up for himself in the beginning. But it's as you said, Mitzi, it's it's him thinking that if I take it, I can make it. Right? Which so many of us, I'm not even saying just so many black people, so many of us who um have been otherized or marginalized um have have lived in that way. Oh, I can take it. And then I'll get to where I need to be. But the line keeps being pushed. You have to take more. You have to take more. You have to take more. You know, my mom, we were talking the other day um, after the election uh, was, was certified. And she said, you know, the big and the small, we have to take the big and the small. And we've taken the big and the small for so long, for so many years. And it all adds up. And it's true. And it takes a toll. And sometimes it manifests extremely poorly. And we see that in the book, right? Um, when Buck, who has endured so much at the hands of others, then begins to hurt the people who are closest to him, especially when tragedy strikes. Um, so I, with, with Buck and, and his journey, especially in the beginning, I wanted to show the sacrifices that so many of us make in order to attain success, right? And, and calling into question, what is the cost of it? And how much do some of us have to pay? And also calling into question, do we really have to pay? Because over the past couple of weeks, people have asked me, they said, you know, did Buck have to change who he was to like, you know, really become successful? And what I say is Buck had to change who he was to become successful at someone. 
at an environment that is predicated on assimilation, that is predicated on creating a, a culture where people care more about the company's mission than themselves or their you know personal relationships outside of the workplace. But what I what I also say is, Buck, you know, could have stayed true to who he was before he began working at that company. You know, probably quit or gotten fired and then gone somewhere else that that praised who he was and praised his character. You know, it's not one thing or the other. And someone is the name, the name of the company they that he worked at. And I think I think for him, too. And I I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about it because of who he was before he was very successful at Starbucks and very loved. His employees really loved him. And I, I would say he was making an impact on on people's lives, um, even though maybe society would view being the director of sales at a big company as more important than, than leading a Starbucks team. But I think there must have been part of him, too, because he got this opportunity when he was in a place in his life where he was like floundering and he's so smart. He just had all this potential and energy that had nowhere to go and he didn't know how to begin that taking it and taking some of that racism. It was, it was this probably double edged sword for him because he didn't have that knowledge. He could just walk away at first. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head, right? Like him working at Starbucks, what what's wrong with that right um but people in our people in our society and definitely me in the past would have said this guy's wasting his life but why he's working at a starbucks as you said he is successful he has a well-oiled machine he the people that work with him love him and look up to him he has their admiration he's not making you know a lot of money by any means but he's he's feeling okay you know and in in a lot of the copy for the book, and even when I was initially pitching it, I described his, him as unambitious, um, which is true. He was he's content, but <laughs> a lack of ambition for many people, especially in America, is synonymous with um, being like this this leech on society, or being stagnant, or or, or not living into what it means to be American and to always want more, you know, more of X, Y, Z, whatever that is. Um, so for Buck, hearing it from his mother, you need to fulfill your potential, you know, hearing it from people around him, even seeing in the eyes of his girlfriend, Soraya, it all adds up to him. And it all culminates in that moment when he pitches Rhett, the CEO of the startup, someone on a different drink. And as you alluded to, Mitzi, it, it has to do with activation. Rhett sees the potential within Buck, and he knows what he's doing, and he knows how to activate it in such an extreme way. And it's like this supernova, this atomic or nuclear bomb dropping, or you know, or like this, this just Buck, you know, releasing all this energy um, and all this unfulfilled potential in such a disastrous way, and. When I've tried to contextualize it for myself, you know, I'm having a lot of conversations about the book, and I'm so grateful for these conversations because I'm learning more about my own intentions for the book and the way that other people, you know, perceive them. Um, and it comes down to a question, right? What happens when someone who so many people say has an enormous amount of potential 
is finally granted the opportunity to fulfill it in an extreme way, but without the proper guidance. And that's the question at the core of the book. And I think it does change how he looks at the world, regardless of whether he's succeeded or not. I think once he he learned the vocabulary of sales, um, and because the story is told in retrospect, when you, you when you open and it's kind of a an author's note to the book in Buck's voice, one of the things he lays out for the reader, which is pretty astonishing, it's like a different way of looking at everything. He says, um, you know, the first line is there's there's nothing like a black man on a mission. And then he says, no, let me revise that. There's nothing like a black salesman on a mission. And then he starts explaining that like MLK, Malcolm X, James Baldwin, you know, Frederick Douglass, Nina Simone, Oprah, they're all actually salespeople. They're, they're selling you on a vision. And that he then looked at his whole life through that. It's like convincing people or, or, or even of your own authenticity is all about sales. And I'm just curious to ask you more about this perspective and if it's something you sort of had an aha moment when you went into sales. Mm. Yeah. Um, Buck's perspective, you know, over the course of the novel and his journey definitely does change. Right. And he becomes so much more competent at charting his own path and then helping other people chart their own. And this book, you know, it very intentionally doubles as a sales manual so that the, the direct address to readers um, where Buck breaks the fourth wall and will dispense a sales tip, which, you know, these sales tips purposely, um, purposely are synonymous with life tips will help any reader who's actually open to receiving them chart their own path or become a little bit uh, more empowered to do so, at least in, in a small way. So in terms of my own personal life, I hold to the belief that everything is sales. This conversation right now, I'm trying to sell you on my perspective, right? I'm trying to, through my tone, sell you on my competency, not only as an author, but someone who can speak, um, with, with belief and with competency about my own book, right? And, and you in turn are discussing questions that you're trying to sell me are important enough. That, that's really the way that I view the world, but people look at sales um, as this sleazy thing. And if I were to say everything is sales, people would be like, well, no, I'm not looking to make a transaction every day. I'm not looking to get something from someone every day or give something to them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about simply um, looking at the amount of times that you're having a conversation with someone or yourself, or you're reading something or you're writing something, or you see an advertisement and understand that that all comes down to people trying to get other people to either do something or gain a new perspective um, or give up previous perspectives um, and if you look at the world in that way, it's, it's not dark for me. It's personally really fun, but it, there's a dark side to it all, right? Because that could give way to manipulation that could give way to greed. Um, so, so it's, it's dangerous, but I do believe that everything is, is sales, at least when it comes down to an interaction uh, of beliefs and communication. So one of the things that this job did offer 
Buck is that he he began to see the world through a wider lens. So he has this this small community of people that he is surrounded by, that he loves, that make up his world, that include his mom, his girlfriend, Soraya, um, his, there's a lodger in, in their home who's lived, who's always lived there and, and rented the bottom apartment named Mr. Rawlings. There is his friend from growing up, Jason, who's in a really different position um, than Buck. He He's selling drugs, but they're still really good friends. And then there's another like kind of neighborhood guy named Wally Cat who had lost and won fortunes through through real estate and other means throughout his life and is is sort of a like a wise character often offering advice to to buck and he starts off with these people but as he he gets into the sort of grip of someone and gets deeper into the clenches even as these questionable things are happening to him he grows farther and farther away from his community and that's a big source of tension in the book. Yeah. Um, it's funny, right? Because Buck's neighborhood compared to the building of someone on Three Park Avenue, it's not, they're not far apart from each other geographically, but they're worlds apart from one another um, in terms of social aspects, financial aspects. Um, what people are focused on, right? Demographics. Um, so when Buck, even though he was already working at Three Park Avenue, he was on the first floor at Starbucks, which was then another world apart um, from the 36th floor, which is where the company Someone was. But once Buck goes to that 36th floor, and after he goes through hell and really becomes one of them, one of these people working at the company, um, his worldview is just completely changed. What he sees is completely changed. He's making more money than he ever has before. He's making more money than his mom. Um, he, his, his whole belief system and moral compass is changing in terms of priorities. Um, he cares more about, you know, being able to, to dominate and win. And, um, he ends up, you know, this guy, before he ever worked at this startup, he never drank. And when he gets in there, you know, he starts drinking a lot, um, doing other things, hitting the club. So it's just like, I don't know. I mean, how, how could he have not, you know, changed his whole life? It would have been so hard. He would have had to had the discipline of like a Kung Fu master, you know, or a monk or Buddha himself, you know, to have, not been affected uh, materially by everything he was experiencing. So as his world opens up, his inner world changes. And not everyone who he used to know likes that. And when they begin to, to call his, his changing um, inner world into question, which his mother does, which Mr. Rawlings, um, I love that you call him a lodger, um, <laughs> we usually just call them tenants over here on the East coast, right? Mr. Rawlings. Um, he, when he says things, when his girlfriend, Soraya, even Soraya's dad, Mr. Aziz, who owns the corner store, when Jason, when all of these people start saying, Hey man, what's going on with you? Are you okay? Buck, instead of 
living into how 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 supposedly intelligent he is, right, um, plays into self awareness. Excuse me, a lack of self awareness without even knowing it, and he, he just pushes back and says, "Oh, you don't know, you don't know what it's like. You don't know how great this company is. You're just jealous, X, Y, Z." And and then we see that that comes back to to bite him, and. I'm not going to say that my own journey was as extreme, but when I was working at uh, the startup that I was at for, for almost four years, um, I definitely had a, some of those conversations with the people who were closest to me where I was saying, you don't understand what it's like. You know, you, you wouldn't be able to do something like this. This is just, you know, where we have this life-changing mission. And um, when I left the company in, in 2016, I was like, whoa, I had woken up out of, out of a stupor. Right. Um, what we would now call the sunken place due to Jordan Peele's get out. And I was like, what What was I doing? Oh, my God. You know. Um, so, yeah, Buck's worldview changed and then it changes again, though. And I think that that is just representative of how um, how if we allow ourselves to change, then we will. And often, even if we're unaware of it. Well, I think, too, when you sort of leave your people behind and then you realize you probably, it's probably like almost like a slingshot. Like you were there and you were present and then you went away. But then when you come back, you come back with more force. Like you come back with more love, more empathy, more mission to support the roots you came, you came from because you've, you've sort of strayed and seen the ramifications of it. And that's, that is what happened to Buck. So, Along the way, he realized, like, he looked around, he saw he was the only only black person working at this company, and he realized, like, he he could lift other black people up. He could lift people up with potential. He could teach anyone to sell. And so he sort of becomes, like, this guru and ends up willingly and unwillingly taking in almost like strays from the street to to teach them how to sell and better their lives. And it, it is a mission. And it's something that you even say in your biography is your mission. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Yeah, just going back to something um, you referenced a few seconds ago, Mitzi, right? Um, not everyone does go back, right? Not everyone does have that realization of, whoa, what's been going on? So being able to to attain that level of self-awareness after being so lost is such a gift. And it's also one that I believe has to be given to you, right? I, I don't believe liberation, even in small ways, happens in a vacuum. So in terms of Buck um, building this organization then called Happy Campers that aims to uplift uh, you know, people of color, not just black people, people of color with potential um, and help them learn how to sell to better their lives and to, to make money finally um, and to build something that changes the landscape of, of startups and also just, you know, the uh, corporate world, even if just for a second, was something that he had to be sold on himself, right? Um, for Buck, it was being pushed by Brian, by um, a, a dynamic, she was so fun to write. Um, character named Rose, who appears, you know, I don't know, three fourths and three fourths of the way into the book. Um, and it's these people who say, "Listen, man, you've helped us. You can help so many other people. This is what your mother 
you know, has always wanted for you, um, whether you knew it or not. It wasn't to be this, you know, asshole in sales who only lived for, for money and the fast life. It was to actually um, impact people in, in a positive and in such a large way that would have reverberations um, throughout their own lives and maybe even the world. So Buck is given that gift of liberation by the people that he surrounds himself by or, or who force themselves into his life in some way. And it's then he says, okay, I'm going to do this. That this is she, that she is right. That all these other people uh, around me are saying is right. That my purpose in life has to be to uplift others and help people get ahead because I was lost. But and, uh, this is going to sound sort of biblical. But now I'm found. <laughs> you know, it sounds, sounds super super religious. Um, so so yeah, that that's how it plays out. And then that also leads to to certain levels of catastrophe. Um, but I'm not going to you know spoil the ending or any big twist. Well, one of the things that it caused was controversy with his employer of the the group that he formed, Happy Campers, was sort of, they were under the radar. They were sort of operating at night. And because he had this position of power in someone in his company and because he had such a close relationship with uh, the CEO, Rhett, he never admitted that it was him behind this movement. And it it got more... um, a little bit, there's more tension and controversy there because his, his quote mentor Clyde in the sales, more like his uh, nemesis forms this, this group, this group, this sales group called the white United society of salespeople, um, which is, you know, the acronym. Let's not go into was yet, but let's first talk about why was it controversial for him to form to bring others up like it didn't really interfere with his work but what you know what do you feel like you could share with listeners about why that existed that tension just a lot right at that point in the book um people people know who buck is he he was like a wonder kid right like he he had been on talk shows at that point and in the book the reader um has seen him on a few talk shows um, either defending the company, someone um, or himself, and then just he becomes this this like this model, uh, the poster poster boy for tech sales and startups in America. So he has a profile, and he felt as though um, if people were to know that he was starting this group that was so revolutionary um, to the world of startups and sales and 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 uh, corporate America, that it would put the group in jeopardy, but also himself. And not only that, he knew that Rhett, his mentor, right? He, he views Rhett as a god. Um, Rhett, uh, the CEO of someone, if, if Rhett found out about this, that Rhett would be beyond devastated. He would be angry. He would look at Buck and say, after all I've done for you, you're going to go and start this, this other group that is going to reflect poorly, not only upon you, but my company and the hundreds of employees at it and, and the opportunity that I've given you. So Buck really doesn't want to disappoint Rhett. He really doesn't want to put the group uh, of, of the happy campers in jeopardy. And, um, he's also just afraid of, of what could happen. You know, people were to find out and we see that when the world does find out, 
about who's behind Happy Campers. Oh, man, I mean, everyone at the company, someone, where he basically, you know, uh, I was going to say grew up. He was there for, for about a year, but he was he was raised professionally there. Um, turn on him. Rhett is beyond devastated and disappointed. And uh, for some time, the, the world that, that lifted him up, right, um, and, and the people who supported his rising star also turn on him. So I think he had uh, a lot of good reason and foresight to not want people to know that it was him who had formed this group. And then let's talk about wuss, because it was so blatantly racist, but the way they couched it is like, hey, you know, you're being racist against white people now. Like white people have to have their due. Yeah. I mean, we see that today. We've seen it throughout history, really, but we're seeing it today play out as well, where, um, you know, I didn't make this up. I I read it and I can't recall from where, but where people say that um, for some people, equality looks like oppression to them. And that's what we're seeing play out in the book. And, you know, this was written in, in, in 2018. So it's not like it was written for this exact moment that we're living in today. Uh, but it was pulling from past moments, which this moment is connected to. And um, we're, we're seeing that Clyde is feeling threatened by having this uh, organization, the Happy Campers, that wants to just simply lift up black and brown people and other people of color and help them get ahead. But Clyde is looking at this as an attack on himself, as an attack on what it means to be an American. And he has no problem finding dozens of other people who agree with him. And all you have to do is look at the news today, um, at least news pertaining to, to America, even outside of America. But um, I can only speak about the news that, I, that I'm keyed into. Uh, we see it playing out all the time, you know, with, with um, groups of, of non-black people and groups of even just uh, specifically white people who are beginning to feel disenfranchised by the Black Lives Matter movement and the call for equality and all these stories about racism. Not only are they like, yo, I'm tired of hearing about this, but I don't like it. And this feels like a personal attack on me. But I didn't, I, I didn't enslave anyone. I have no privilege. You know, a lot of people like to say, a lot of white people like to say, I'm, I'm poor myself. Where's my privilege, right? Um, so it's very easy to, to get these people riled up and say we need to band together um, in like a white supremacist group, whether they call it like that or not, to combat all of this, you know, black, <laughs> black stuff, you know, black and brown stuff, whatever you want to call it. Um, so Clyde's group was the White United Society of Salespeople. I think it's pretty true to form, and and, uh, and I think that it's just like a direct reflection of a lot of the groups that are forming today. One of the things that Buck says um, in the book, it's about the middle of the book. He he every once in a while he's he's talking to the reader. It's like a very active text because it is, as you said, like a memoir or, um, you know, I read it a little bit like a manifesto of his experience. He's, he's trying to teach. He says, um, every once in a while he, he has like little paragraphs set off aside where he gives 
advice um, scattered throughout, which I wanted to talk about. He's directly addressing the reader. It says like reader colon, and then it has his advice. And in the middle, it says, be careful of winning. It's one of the most dangerous things you can ever do. So I wanted to ask you about that line and also then the inclusion of these, these asides to the reader. Yeah, the asides that came about in the fourth draft, actually. Um, and the, the asides, I got the idea for them from reading um, How to Get Filthy Rich and Rising Asia by um, Mohsen Hamed. Uh, I read it years ago, though, and so it was just stewing around in my subconscious. And then I read <clears throat> The Residue Years by Mitchell S. Jackson, where he would sometimes uh, break the fourth wall or his character would break the fourth wall and say, people, and just comment on what was going on at any point in the book. So um, Mohsen Hamed's book and then reading Mitchell S. Jackson's book, like those two things um, just really coincided. And then I thought about sales manuals. You know, when I was coming into the world of sales, when I was talking about how, how I was an intern, one of the co-founders of the company had given me these two books, um, The Sales Bible and The Little Red Book of Selling by a guy named Jeffrey Gittimer. And I just loved the way that uh, they unfolded. I loved his tips. I loved even the glossy pages and how the, the tips just really jumped off of the page. So those three things made me say, you know what? Like I'm already writing this as a sales manual. Like I had by the fourth draft, you know, even, even with the first draft, I knew that I wanted to double as a sales manual, but I thought that having Buck break the fourth wall would do a few things. One really instilled the sense that this was not just, you know, a novel and an engaging narrative, but also something that doubled as a sales manual that could help people get ahead. And that it would also allow him to re-engage the reader, especially uh, during difficult times in the novel, where the reader most likely really despises Buck and hates him. So for an older Buck who's actually writing this book to peek in and say, hey, 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 I know that this is crazy right now. I know that you hate me, but just bear with me. I think it'll pay off at the end. Um, so that, those, are, those are the two main reasons why I wanted to include those, um, those direct addresses to the reader. I wasn't really thinking about, oh, let me just be experimental for you know, experimentation's sake. Um, but I am happy that uh, some people do view it as you know, breaking form because that's what it is. Um, but in terms of that specific line, Mitzi, that you brought up about winning, um, I experienced this myself. And I think that a lot of people <clears throat> that are in uh, competitive fields or spaces, whether it is sports or even, you know, the creative industry or business, that once you win, however you define that, and once it happens again and again and again, it becomes a narcotic. You can become addicted to it, right? And your whole identity becomes wrapped up in it. And if you don't win then you'll start doing um, unsavory things to win. And if you are doing those unsavory things and you're still not winning, you can spiral out of control and then call into question your, your own existence. So that's, that was the point of that line, you know, be careful uh, of winning um, because winning could be tragic. And I know that sounds really crazy to say, but um, if you see how it plays out in the book, right, of how much Buck was winning, how much this company was winning, um, it, it led to his detriment and the detriment of those who loved him most. 
I want to talk a little bit about Wally Cat. Um, I really liked his character. He didn't appear much. He was always kind of sitting on the same, uh, the same chair in the same corner, like on a crate. And um, Buck would pass him on his way to get the train to work. And earlier on in the book, he said to Buck. He says, everybody doing something got people telling them they can't do it. If you're doing something and people ain't telling you that you can't do it, truth is you ain't doing shit, he said, doubling over. So he, he's basically saying, like, if people are telling you that you can't do something, then that's what you should do. If, if you can do it already, don't, don't bother. Yeah, yeah, and I love hearing you read Wally Cat. I know, it's so white. Anyone read him. <laughs> no, 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 it's the first time I've heard anyone read him to me. It's so cool. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, ah, it's just, it, it, Wally Cat, right, he, he's saying exactly what you said, Mitzi. Like, um, if people are, are telling you, if people aren't doubting you in some ways, then you're probably not doing anything really big right and and big it comes down to whoever is defining it and he's you know he's saying that if if you are doing something and and no one is is doubting you or even hating on you then it's probably not worth doing or it's not something that's going to have a material effect on other people and he he's also saying that you know if people are hating just take it in stride just keep going he, 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 he delivers some advice about having a short-term memory about good and bad. And that just comes back to the concept of equanimity, right? Just having a balanced mind and, and not really playing into the highs or playing into the lows. And it's funny that you bring up Wally Cat and, and these specific points because they're just reminding me in this, in this journey that I'm on as a writer. It's so easy to get caught up in the highs. It's so easy to get caught up in the hype as well as the lows. And what I think um, is most healthy for me in my emotional state is just to have as even of a mind as possible. And speaking about, you know, the, the, the quote that you just, uh, recited from Wally, um, when it comes to my book, I hesitate to say this, but it's all, it's what I'm feeling right now. It would maybe be a loss if everyone who read it loved it. Fortunately, I know that everyone who reads it doesn't love it, right? I read the Goodreads reviews still. Um, a lot of people like it, but then there's some people who are like, whoa, 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 what was this, you know? Um, so for me, that polarization, even that slight polarization is a win because then it's something worth discussing. It's not just like, you know, no knock whatsoever to people who write these books, but it's not just like a beach read that you, you read and then you forget about it, right? I want this to be something that people are talking about that is generating good discussion and debate and will help people um, find out new things about themselves and the way they view the world and, you know, and, and maybe just remind them of things that they already know. Those are personally some of my aims for the book. Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, most definitely. Um, so this, this passage I'm about to read, it's from Raven Lilani's Luster, um, which I'm sure many people have heard about. It was a huge book for 2020. And, you know, this, this passage, it, it didn't really like influence me on my writing or anything because I wrote Black Book a while ago, but it spoke to me deeply when I read it. I had to pause. <clears throat> and it begins like this. It wasn't like that. The way he was talking to her, it felt specific, I say. 
and then there is no fluffy alternative word for what I'm trying to convey. No way to effectively explain violations that are not overt. It is a rhetorical hellscape, a casual reduction so frequent it is mundane, almost too mundane for the deployment of the R word, as with a certain sect of good white persons, the accusation overshadows the act. Racism, I should yell, because I'm sure Rebecca will receive it in the uppercase regardless. And already I feel her seizing on the drama of its implication. Even though racism is often so mundane, it leaves your head spinning. The hand of the ordinary in your slow, psychic death, so sly and absurd, you begin to distrust your own eyes. So it has taken me a long time for me to get here, to say, yes, this is what happened. It happened just like that. But when Rebecca turns and scrapes the rest of her food off the plate and into the trash, I feel like a jerk. She looks at me. Any goodwill that existed between us is lost. This, this piece really, or at least this passage of luster, spoke to me so intimately because it, it captured sort of what I was talking about earlier, right? When I, was, uh, when I was recounting that conversation with my mom about the big and the small. When it comes to racism, sometimes it is so innocuous or as Alalani writes, mundane, that you're like, wait, what actually just happened? What actually just transpired? And it makes you feel paranoid, anxious, overly sensitive, and it also opens you up to gaslighting when you're feeling that way, right? And if you articulate what you believe to be a microaggression or a, a slight, um, a racist slight, people could say, oh, yeah, it was nothing. What are you talking about? When it actually was something, even if it is so mundane, so innocuous, so seemingly small. So when I read that, I was like, whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. She really captured a thought that I've had for so long, um, but I've never seen it rendered so clearly and articulately um, outside of my own mind. Um, so I, I was just really grateful for it, and, and that's why I wanted to discuss that part. Can you read a passage you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This, this passage that uh, I'm going to recite is, is something that um, it was, it was tricky to write, and um, I'll discuss a little bit more after I read it. And this is from Black Buck itself. A sea of people ebbed and flowed, spilling out of every corner, entering, leaving, standing on desks, huddling in offices, sitting under tables with fingers in their ears as mouths moved at hyperspeed, throwing balls at one another. Is this real or was there something in those pancakes? People zipped by on scooters with mugs of hot coffee in their hands. Clusters of guys and girls rode on floor-to-ceiling windows overlooking the East River like they were in a beautiful mine. Dogs barked and chased one another. People wielded purple-painted Louisville sluggers behind others sweating on phones as if they would bat heads in for saying one wrong word. There was a girl walking around with a piglet in her arms, petting it as she laughed into the headset nestled in her orange-red hair. I turned to Rhett, who was casually scrolling through his phone. What is this? This? He shrugged, smiling at me. This is the sales floor at 9 a.m. What else? So that uh, specific passage, it, it was something that was a little tricky to write, but also something I feel like I succeeded at because I, I could have just written so much more. I wanted to write so much more about someone, about what it was like, you know, for me to even be in the startup world and, and the things that I saw, I could have included a whole page or two pages of description just about crazy things going 
up. Um, and I had to cut back on it just because you get the gist of this place in those few paragraphs, right? And, and that was something that I had to work on as well in terms of this, this book. The first draft was 168,000 words, right? I, I had written so much that after that, I had to go in um, with a scalpel, even though I, at some point it felt like a, a butcher knife, you know, to try to cut out um, things that were unnecessary, even though uh, they, they felt important to me. Where do you write? At a small black desk facing a white wall in a corner of my apartment. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? It's hard. I mean, I really don't. Uh, when I'm working on a book and I'm very deep in it, it, it really feels like I'm writing all the time, even just in the background of other tasks. Um, but when I need to go somewhere off the page to work parts of a story out, I usually go to the woods or some other place full of nature and silence. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My ex-girlfriend. How have you dealt with rejection? It's just a means to an end. And what is your favorite word? Yo! <laughs> Y-O. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Mitzi, thanks so much. This is uh, fantastic. Thank you for your time. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Mateo Escaripur, author of the novel Black Buck. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Nigerian author Egoni Barrett, whose book Black Ass tells the story of a Nigerian man who wakes up one day to discover he has become white. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. May this year, 2021, be the beginning of better days for the world at large. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.